0: And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
1: A firm is a little communist government in the small-c sense because all of the means of production are owned and managed by the government, and they use centralized planning.
2: Hello, i to Chris Clancho on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Elizabeth Anderson, who is the John Dewey Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan. There are not a lot of philosophers who get a full profile in The New Yorker, but but Anderson is one of them. Her ideas on equality and equity and justice um, and democracy are really relevant to the moment. She also uh, published a book recently, which is a big part of the reason I want to talk to her, called Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. And this is a book based on a series of lectures, but it's about extending ideas of democracy and democratic equality to the workplace, which is a space in which we don't often think about them. Um, As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Elizabeth Anderson. Elizabeth Anderson, welcome to the podcast.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
2: So I want to begin with a framing device you use in the book, which is to define what ideologies are, what their purpose and what their perils are when we use them. Can can you talk a bit about that idea?
1: Yeah. So I want to, first of all, think of ideology not just as a set of explicit claims, but as a set of representations more broadly that help us navigate our social world. So there are representations of our social world, which we use to navigate ourselves through it and understand what's happening. But ideologies can also systematically misrepresent what our world is. It could leave out chunks of it and thereby leave us without the tools to understand our own experience. And when that happens, ideology becomes not just an all-purpose tool, but a tool that in fact is functioning to mask from ourselves some important phenomena that are often very problematic. And that's what I'm trying to think about. Now, ideology isn't just a set of representations. It's also practices based on those representations and a whole suite of emotions and attitudes that go along and fit with those practices. So when I criticize, characterize, and criticize ideology, I'm also criticizing underlying practices and the sets of attitudes that fit with those practices.
2: And, and so to ground this a little bit in the specific, this is the, the the danger that you mistake your map for the actual territory, that you've developed a way of looking at the world that is convincing and helps you navigate it. But because it is so convincing and because it is so helpful navigating it, you mistake it for the actual world itself. And so having created a shortcut wherein, say, uh, you see government as something only the state does. You miss governments being things that look like governments that operate at the level of the family or the level of a private business or in all other kinds of institutional relationships we have in life.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. So I think if if we think about our the ideology which most Americans inhabit, and in particular the ideology that's reflected in public political discourse we have this picture that, you know, we have a stark choice in front of us for any given uh, issue or problem. We can assign responsibility for dealing with it to the state, to government, as we call it, or we could assign it, you know, to individuals to decide for themselves freely and voluntarily. And I want to say This misses out on the fact that government is everywhere, government in the sense of structured authority in which people operate within governmental organizations where they have to take orders, coordinate with other people under authority and where they are subject to sanction if they don't follow what the authorities want. Once we see government in that broader context, then we can recognize it operating in all kinds of organizations that aren't run by the state. Centrally, we find government in the workplace. So instead of seeing the workplace as just a free market where individuals voluntarily get together and negotiate the terms of their cooperation freely, In a personally tailored way, we should view workers when they enter the firm as entering a structured system of government, a set of authority relations in which they're at the bottom and have to take orders unless they're lucky enough to be a CEO or on the board of directors.
2: So before we get into the the precise kinds of orders workers end up taking, I, I want to back up in your thought a bit, because it's very helpful for me to read an earlier and, and very important article you wrote about the idea of democratic equality and the centrality of that as a concept versus other kinds of equality that we've traditionally discussed in, in politics. Can you talk a little bit about what democratic equality is and what makes it different than more traditional understandings or conceptions of equality?
1: Yes. So traditionally, people have thought of equality in terms of equality of the amounts of goods that different individuals have access to. So that might be income and wealth, that could be opportunities. Sometimes egalitarians think more generally about equality of welfare or happiness or well being. And I want to get away from that and think of equality rather as a set of social relationships? What is it for us to meet as equals in the public square, as citizens, or perhaps even as workers? Equality for me is fundamentally a kind of social relation, which is the antithesis of social hierarchy, where one person has to be subordinate to another person, or One group is stigmatized relative to another group that's exalted in status and in public representation, or someone lacks standing in the main institutions of society in the sense that their interests really don't count for anything. In the deliberations of the people who are running those institutions. Rather, those institutions are oriented to serving the interests of a different group of people or different individuals.
2: You, you make a really interesting point in that piece, that the the luck egalitarians, the folks who are looking at equality in terms of what talents are we born with, what kinds of lo- what, what kind of luck do we have as we're traveling through life, end up focusing a lot on resource distribution. Because if you're going to try to redress any of that, the the way you're going to redress it is in the material outcomes of of what life tends to give you, and so people go all the way to saying, you know, if you're if you're ugly, you get a check depending on somebody else's vision of what of what beauty is, or if you've had um, the bad luck to be temperamentally impulsive, maybe you you get some kind of <laughs> redistribution later in life, and that your form of equality ends up focusing on the forms of oppressions that structures impose on people, as opposed to simply leveling out resources. Can, Can you talk a bit about the difference between focusing on externally opposed oppression as opposed to material outcome?
1: Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical to understand this. Look, people suffer from accidents, bad luck, misfortune all the time. But to focus on that, I think, is to efface the reality of structural oppression, where it's not just a bolt of lightning coming out of the blue that might fell an individual, but the fact that societies are organized hierarchically with some groups on top and some subordinated. And the people in subordinate groups uh, suffer from innumerable socially designed disadvantages that can be uh, quite severe. So when I think egalitarians should be after is getting rid of oppression, getting rid of structural, systematic injustice. Now, there's also some interest in providing people with insurance against accidents of various sorts, and we have that in social insurance. I've written about social insurance. I think social insurance is one of the great inventions Uh, uh, of the last couple of centuries, but social insurance all by itself, whatever wonders it has, does not actually undo structural group-based injustice. Uh, And that, I think, really needs to be the focus of any egalitarian theorizing. We have to join up. We have to do our theorizing to assist egalitarian social movements to help them understand the challenges they're up against and strategies that might be useful for moving forward and in overcoming injustice.
2: Let me try to offer what I assume to be a critique of this, which is there's a litany going far back in history of famous quotations. Um, Frederick Douglass is one who's come to mind right now that a people who are without wealth will soon learn to hate themselves. Um, and I'm paraphrasing him here. But but there's an idea that without a certain level of resource equality, material equality, no kind of democratic equality is possible. And so the, the, the effort to cut these off from each other, to say that you can have uh, an, an equality of democratic participation absent something quite close to an equality of material plenty or at least material division is to mistake what are the actual drivers of how people are seen and how they are listened to in society.
1: Oh, look, I absolutely agree. I'm not, when I stress the importance of equality of social relations, I'm not at all trying to say that material inequality doesn't make a difference. Obviously, it makes a huge difference. What I want to do is resituate distributive justice concerns in the context of an underlying broader concern for equality of social relations. So we can see, as you point out, quoting Douglas, that extreme material inequality can reproduce other forms of inequality over time. If you don't have material resources, it's really hard to get your voice heard. It's really hard to get to get justice in legal context. You can't afford a lawyer. (laughs) It's hard to move around in the world without feeling stigmatized because one can't afford to launder one's clothes or to have decent clothes. All of these things make a huge difference to people's standing and status and recognition in the world. So material deprivation Extreme material inequality has a huge impact on social relations.
2: There's another piece of the argument you make that I just want to go into it really as a point of host privilege because it, it so uh, aligns with something that that I rant about on the show all the time. But you look at the the lucky egalitarianisms, the lucky egalitarians who are trying to redress all the ways in which people can be born and then travel through life unequally. And make the point that if you take it seriously, you end up very rapidly in some kind of dystopia. The number of things that you're trying to redress become so broad that the judgments you need to make to redress them and the intrusions you need to redress them become scary. And so I, I lived in Washington, D.C. For, very, for 15 years and covered politics there, and I now covered from California. But the most popular thing to be for in politics is a quality of opportunity. You don't want to be for a quality of outcome, but you want to be for a quality of opportunity. And it always struck me that if you took that even remotely seriously, you ended up in a place that was, um, to, to, to use my, my colleague Dylan Matthews' argument, totalitarian. I mean, to try to redress parental inequalities and genetic inequalities and everything else that feeds into our opportunities goes so far beyond even what equality of outcomes demands that it becomes somewhere between comical and chilling. But, but I wondered if you could talk a bit about this idea of what it means to take the inequalities of luck and uh, personal attribute seriously.
1: Yes. So let's just keep in mind that equality of opportunity itself, I think, is an ideal that has been expanded past its domain of application. So particularly when we talk about equality of opportunity in the context of K-12 education in particular, I think it goes completely off the rails. Equality of opportunity says that people with the same underlying talents should face equal opportunities for education and advancement, say, equal opportunities, say, to get into elite colleges or something like that. But really, when you, when you examine that more closely, you're assuming that, number one, we can identify underlying talents independently of how they've actually been developed by the K-12 system. But even if we could do so, do we really want to be ruled by a genetic aristocracy? I don't think so. (laughs) I I just think that's just completely to misunderstand where equality of opportunity has an appropriate application, which is not as a global uh, uh, kind of aspiration. But in particular contexts, like, you know, you are hiring somebody for a position and you want to make sure that you're not letting your prejudices or institutional barriers uh, prevent people of all different groups from getting effective access to those opportunities. I think we should see rather in terms of removing obstacles that some groups face in getting access to opportunity rather than thinking, oh, we have already in, you know, some idealized notion of where everyone should be slotted in to all of the positions in society. Uh, That's, I I do not have such an ideal notion of how everybody should be slotted in. And I think if you actually tried to implement such a notion, uh, we would be in big trouble.
2: There's something subtle there that I want to draw out because you, you you draw this out in the article in a really interesting way, but that a lot of visions of justice implicitly have at their core a valuing system of people. So if you're looking at something like uh, trying to redress inequality of opportunity and you started from the perspective that you just did, which is once you establish um, equal talents or once you establish a way of weighting talents, then you want the people with the most talents or possibly the most grit, the people who make the mo- the best decisions to rise to the top. Um, and so that's a, a a kind of classically meritocratic ideal, but that it's a way then of saying some of these people are worth a lot more because they're less impulsive or they make better decisions or they use their talents better, um, and that democratic equality has a different way of weighting people that is more uh, respectful of the idea that lots of people in society are playing different roles and all of them are valuable. Can you talk about that that idea of weighting and and how it plays into the, the the collision between different approaches to equality and justice?
1: Yeah. So. If if we think about meritocracy, usually what people have in mind is that you can rank order people in in terms of talent or ability in some sort, and then you're going to pick off the people at the top. Uh, But in fact, if we look at what we need organizations to be doing for us, they need to be serving the full diversity of people in society. The role of firms, of educational institutions is is to serve everybody in their full diversity. What would it take to actually effectively do that, given that different people occupy different parts of the social order, that there's rampant inequality and injustice all over the place? Is it even possible to design an institution that's capable of serving everyone when it doesn't encompass the full diversity? of people in that society? I don't think so, because people who who are tend to rank higher on whatever notion of merit that's been designed by the people who are already at the top, usually those notions of merit are designed to favor people who are like them. And those people tend to be isolated from uh, the people who are disadvantaged in society. They, they really don't have an effective idea about how to serve them. Different people located in different social positions uh, in our society have access to different knowledge, different skill sets, uh, different perspectives on what it would take to serve them well. And all that diverse knowledge needs to be incorporated into the mainstream institutions of society in state government, in educational institutions, in firms in order for those institutions to actually effectively serve everyone and not just serve the advantaged people in society. That's what a democratic vision is. It's an inclusive vision. It's supposed to include everyone. And that needs to change our notions of even what merit could be. So we already have an understanding that an organization requires a division of labor, People with specialized skills and knowledge for particular roles in that firm, producing some product or service. But we should also think that the skill sets needed are more diverse than that. You need people who are able to engage effectively and understand the needs of different consumers, clients, patients, or what have you. And that requires certain kinds of social knowledge that some people have better access to than others with respect to different populations, often because they come from those populations. That's also a dimension of merit. Bringing in a more diverse uh, set of employees in an organization helps that organization serve everybody in society rather than people who are just like them.
2: So can I draw out this idea of diversity? Because I think when people hear diversity now, they think almost exclusively in terms of racial and maybe gender and, and, and sexual diversity. But as I understand your argument, you're actually saying something broader to, to, to maybe grounded in an example. I'm an unusually non-impulsive person. Uh, I like absorb things and sit there and think about them and like plan an action. And I'm very, very good at disciplining my own reactions to things. And people I know and people I love are act and are able to process their own emotions much faster and, and move much quicker. And you could say that my long-term planning uh, is—you you can make a value judgment that, well, it's better to be a long-term planner because then you make a more careful decision. And in some cases, I think I've been rewarded by places I've worked for for that capacity. But you wouldn't only want me— And copies of me around. You need people who move faster. You need people who process things differently. And so part of the idea here is that the the kind of like the glittering diversity of humanity, like all the different ways we respond to threat and to challenge and to new ideas and to new people and travel and all the other things, you need a mix of it. And so something that is pushing us all towards one is itself going to be a, a problem that the, the idea of diversity here is much broader than the way it is spoken about in, in in most discussions or even to to a point i think you make very directly in the piece that the idea that somehow it is more valuable to be a ceo than a secretary that if you didn't have the secretaries and all the other people sort of running the the actual day to day of the operation, you wouldn't have the CEOs or be no way for them to operate in the way they do. And so the, the idea that we're valuing the person on the top instead of all the people who make that person's work um, doable is a is a mistake from a societal level point of view. It's 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 valuing the individual and mistaking the organization and the organism.
1: Yeah, so I think you're, you've got a couple of things going on here. One is the thought that we need a diversity, even of personality dispositions to have successful organizations. So you need some people who are eager, they're chomping at the bit, they wanna go ahead, they're risk takers. Uh, but others, it's also helpful for an organization to have maybe a few skeptics, people who are more cautious. Uh, and they can balance each other out in various ways. And we have some wonderful examples of this uh, in the history of science. Uh, a, a wonderful philosopher of science, uh, Miriam Solomon at uh, Tufts University, did a terrific book about the history of the theory of continental drift and how, how scientists came to accept the theory of continental drift. She pointed out that basically everybody had their own biases. Every scientist is biased in favor of the of the data that they personally have collected or that their team has collected as opposed to other people's data. Uh, the people on the continents, uh, working on continents, thought it was really continental geology that mattered. And the people working on the oceans thought, no, the real important data is at the bottom of the oceans. And all these really interesting, quirky biases, which are completely understandable, ended up if you have a functional organization, as she showed, the geologists were basically functional, the bad parts of the biases kind of rub out. And what you get is a really successful progress of human knowledge when people have different dispositions, some going out on a limb in this in this very risky theory. Others saying, well, but we need more evidence, right? And and different people holding each other to account through peer review and in conferences and so forth ended up producing a better product than, say, if you just took only the scientists who scored like at the top of some exam. That's not actually very relevant because there are all these other things that aren't measured by the exam, other diversities that uh, of Personality and disposition and intellectual perspective that are needed to create a, you know, successful science. And you can you can run that diversity argument across the board. The second point you were making, which I think is also really important, is that diversity works when people with these different perspectives and dispositions and so forth are working together, bouncing ideas off each other, trying to solve problems together. So it's not each person working in isolation, but rather it's the product of our engaging and sometimes in critical and conflictual ways that produces better outcomes from an organizational point of view and a social point of view.
2: Yeah, I think that's all. I, I think that's all right. Um, let me try a theory of your work out on you, because I'd be curious if, if you think this is insightful or, or, or wrong. So as I was thinking about the connection between your work on democratic equality and your work on private government, something that occurred to me is that if you approach the question of how private businesses are run from the direction of resource equality, um, like material egalitarianism, then you almost instantly end up in the question of what distribution in society and in corporations and in businesses is going to lead towards the fastest growth. And even if it's imperfect for a lot of reasons to have these very hierarchical organizations, if what you are concerned about is generating as much surplus so you can then redistribute that surplus so people can have as much of an uh, an advancing but also an equal standard of living as they can, then that's a compromise you're willing to make. But if you're looking at it from the perspective of democratic equality and what is what are people's positions within the social relationships they have, what can we do to make sure people are not being exploited in hierarchies where their uh, equality as a participant is violated? Then all of a sudden, the way we run private businesses doesn't look as good. And the trade-off that at least people believe we're making of efficiency and production um, coming at the cost of equality and voice becomes much more problematic. Is that is that a fair um, bridge?
1: Well, actually, I, I would want to push back against Please. that because I think it assumes more of a trade-off than exists. If anything, I think we're facing a situation in which an enormous amount of workplace inequality is massively dysfunctional even from a so-called efficiency point of view a lot of critics of capitalism these days have been talking about late capitalism and i'm not a fan of that because i don't believe in laws of history and i'm not in any sense a marxist but nevertheless they're they they've captured something which i think is worth thinking about which is that we are encountering a set of pathological uh, profit-maximizing business strategies that actually, from an efficiency point of view, from the point of view of actually adding value to the economy, are massively dysfunctional. They're actually subtracting value or maybe just extracting value from the economy. And we really have to pay attention when these things happen. We have a lot of private equity schemes, for instance, where uh, people take a public corporation private, they borrow 90% of the funds to do so, uh, uh, and then they just start draining the assets of the firm. And if they can pocket 20% of the assets by awarding themselves fantastic management fees, they don't really care if the rest of it goes down because they've made 100% profit on their 10% investment. Uh, And, you know, thousands of jobs could be lost and communities destroyed. Uh, What do they care? Because they came out on top. They are maximizing profits. There are thousands of business models like this, multi-level marketing, for instance, uh, or look at our financial system, which has been massively extracting value at the cost of dramatically increasing the instability uh, of our financial system. And who ends up getting bailed out? I mean, we know what happened. The big banks got bailed out, even though they caused the problem. And ordinary homeowners got shafted. So I'm not even willing to concede the idea that the massive inequalities that we observe today are functional in the sense of growing the total size of the pie. To the contrary.
2: But let me push on this a bit, not because I want to defend private equity business models or banks that collapse the global economy. I don't. Um, but because I think the at least entertaining the idea of a trade-off here here is clarifying. We can argue about whether or not different approaches to social to, to business organization are more efficient. Um, I think that there is a tendency to want to believe that the more Equal and non-hierarchical approaches will will produce more value. And then people try to create co-ops and other things, and they, they keep quite not quite working out at that scale. But even if you don't believe that, if there was a trade-off, if it were the case that, in fact, the people who run corporations are right about how to run the corporation most efficiently, um, whether or not that efficiency is for shareholders or not, you can you can structure capitalism in different ways would that trade-off be worth making? Um, Because it seems to me an implication of your argument is that even if it were the case that it is more efficient to run corporations in this hierarchical way, you shouldn't do it, at least not at this level, because you're violating too much of people's democratic equality. But if the real argument you're making is actually no, that generating that resource abundance that like kind of maximizing growth to the extent we can is actually super important. And now we're just in a kind of empirical question of how to structure it because a trade-off would be worth making if that were in fact the trade-off. That seems like a very different world we're in.
1: Uh, okay. So I think we do have to clarify something. When an organization scales up, participatory democracy is no longer feasible. You need to have a hierarchy of offices to make those things work because they're just too complicated they're too large scale. We don't have enough time to run through all the meetings that would be necessary to hammer out every last decision and there's also it's also important to focus and concentrate responsibility in particular individuals to make sure that things get done. If responsibility for handling problems is completely diffused you ne- you don't know who to hold to account if nobody takes up the slack and produces the result that's needed to make the organization function. So nothing that I say is against a hierarchy of offices within a firm or any large organization, a hospital, uh, you know, a university. Look, I was chair of my department for five years. Um, Chairs are necessary. They have to do like tons of work that, frankly, the vast majority of faculty don't want to have to deal with. Um, And they're liberated not to have to handle the immense bureaucratic responsibilities that are needed just to run a department. So nothing that I say is against a hierarchy of offices. The question is within the firm, what kind of accountability is there of people higher up to those whom they govern? What's important here is you have to have accountability. You have to have some ability for workers lower down in the system to have a voice, to have some kind of say. It doesn't necessarily mean absolute strict equality. If you look at workers' cooperatives, like the the most famous example is the Mondragon system of cooperatives in Spain. It's not like they don't have a hierarchy of offices. Of course they do, but you also have participation at the same time. In effect, what you get is something closer to representative democracy rather than pure participatory democracy like you have in a New England town meeting where the citizens vote collectively on every line item in the town's budget. You don't have that anymore, but you still have representation in a workers cooperative at scale so that workers have a way to have some voice in how they're being governed.
2: All right, we we need to take a very quick break, but I'll be back with my guest,
0: Elizabeth Anderson, after this. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org/slash future to learn more and support their cause. So as we
2: as we begin to talk about some of these different models, let, let's clarify the model that we are currently in. You you, you make the argument that most companies function as If you're thinking about it in terms of governments as a communist dictatorship, talk through why that's the right metaphor.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, first of all, I just want to point out that's just a little tease to the libertarians.
2: (laughs) I'm all all for teasing the libertarians.
1: Um, (laughs) So, it's communist in the small c sense, not in the capital C sense of the Communist Party, obviously. But a firm is a little communist government in the small c sense because all of the means of production are owned and managed by the government, and they use centralized planning, right? The business strategy is determined in the C-suite. That's centralized planning. They they could even have a five-year plan of how they're going to expand their market in, in some area or develop some new product.
2: We prefer to call those plans great leaps forward.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, plan. you know, centralized planning is a thing. It's also a dictatorship because in most American firms, uh, workers don't have a voice. They don't have a right to fire their bosses. They don't even ha- really have a right to speak up in any serious way. In fact, most of them learn to keep quiet and not ask hard questions because they could get in trouble by uh, uh, by doubting the wisdom of uh, the, the top decision makers. So
2: one thing in that metaphor is that You've taken the consumer out of the relationship. And I think that the the reply you would get from some libertarians, if they weren't just thinking about the, the worker-manager relationship, is that, no, these aren't dictatorships, and no, they're not centralized planning— Because the thing happening, the actual operative relationship, is between the firm and the market, and the market as the aggregator of consumer choices. And so if these centralized planners are just sitting there um, making mistakes and making terrible decisions and running the company badly, it is a market that will punish them and eventually drive them out of business. And so the real people who have a representative voice in this are not the workers, that's true. But it is the, the society as a whole, as, um, as directed through market and consumer decision making.
1: Well, if only. I mean, now in our high tech world where we only have a few platforms to, to, to work with, it's not clear how much consumer autonomy we have. What about all these people on Facebook who found their privacy uh, expectations repeatedly violated by Facebook? that's Facebook's basic business strategy is you keep on secretly changing the terms unilaterally messing with people's information and recklessly Uh, and maybe there's a little pushback. And so you step back a little bit uh, when consumers rise up, but then, then you push forward again.
2: But let me, let me give the counter on this just not because I fully believe it, but because I want to hear you respond to it. So in, um, De- Democratic forms of government, oftentimes the public will make decisions that uh, enlightened thinkers or people who like to see themselves as enlightened thinkers don't like, that they they wish they wouldn't want to, say, build a wall on the southern border. Putting aside whether or not that's popular, it isn't, but you could imagine it being so. And that Facebook is maybe a good example of the same thing, that there are a lot of people who focus on these privacy violations quite a bit. And what we would like to see happen is a mass defection of Facebook, is people to say, this company does not take our privacy seriously enough. We are going to leave it and it will collapse. But in fact like a government that finds that people want things that some in the um, commentariat wish they wouldn't want. What Facebook has realized is people don't care about their privacy that much. They like Facebook. They like keeping up with people on it. They you know, like kind of being addicted to the newsfeed. And so they come back and the the actual signal being here, the truthful signal, is that people prefer having this apparently free service where they keep these social connections to having something that they pay for, but their privacy is protected more stringently. And it's really just people like you and me sitting here complaining about it who are the ones um, asking for an undemocratic or unrepresentative outcome. Um, We're just mad that people won't do the thing we want them to do and and, and rise up and demand something different.
1: See, I, I think that underestimates the force of network effects. If you want to link up with your friends, they have all the platforms. It's not just that. They've got Instagram. (laughs) They've got WhatsApp. You don't really have much of a choice not to engage if you you want to connect up with your your friends and family on social media. You go to a different social media that has a trifling percentage of the market uh, and and you can't hook up. So uh, Facebook really is in a a kind of quasi-monopolistic position with respect to giving people access to social networking platforms. And they also have the power to shape the terms of that engagement. And so, yes, given that Facebook could say, do it on our terms, or you can't engage in social networking, then people will say, okay, then I'll accept that. But why should we consumers accept uh, Facebook's dictation of terms to us. Suppose, for instance, Facebook were required to give everyone a set of options of how their information would be used and with whom. Suppose you could switch off to whom your information would be shared with, you know, say you could say, I don't want these advertisers to get access to my information, or I don't want, say, propaganda outfits to be channeling news. Uh, to me, suppose you could switch those things off. Then consumers could freely tailor their social media preferences to their own interests rather than having to take the package deal that Facebook offers as a condition for getting access to services at all. Then we'll see what people really care about with respect to the use of their information. The reality now is that they don't really have any fine-grained ability to affect how their information is going to be used.
2: To draw something out there, uh, back in the day before she was a U.S. senator, when Elizabeth Warren was still an academic and to some degree a regulator working on financial issues, she used to make an argument that I always found extremely compelling, which is that complexity is a way monopolies express themselves. And it's a way that firms gain monopolistic-like or at least um, non-competitive advantages and distort markets. And so she was doing this in the financial market space where she had an idea that I always thought was an excellent idea to force what she called plain vanilla financial products that were written in a very clear way, had a very limited amount of um, like paper they could actually be on, so you had to write something that was clear enough in its terms to fit that way, were very tightly regulated so that people could actually understand what they were buying into, that a huge amount of the ways these relationships operate and, and to your point, become out of balance is that the companies are able to operate at such a level of complexity. Yes, like click accept and also click this box assuring us that you've read our 37 pages of terms and limitations.
1: <laughs> Look, we would all spend our entire lives reading the the, you know, the the conditions for use of the platforms because they're so complicated you can't even figure them out. I've got a PhD and I can't figure it out.
2: And and nor would you want to. I mean, like, it'd be a crazy way to spend your day. I'm a little bit furious at this way, at this new um, emergent equilibrium driven by, I think, primarily European regulations. Now you go to every website and there's a little pop-up saying, hey, just so you know, we put in cookies to improve your experience and follow you around everywhere on the internet so we can advertise to you things that you already bought six days ago. Yeah. And it's like, please like click <laughs> here to read more about all of our tracking technology. Uh, And it's like what they've given people is this illusion of making a choice. But people don't, I mean, you're not looking into the guts of these cookies and figuring out what they actually do. And it's like a crazy, it is a crazy way that we pretend people by entering into a contract have entered into a contract equally and with symmetrical knowledge on both sides, which I think circles us back to, to some of your underlying ideas here, which is that the amount of weight being put on people freely entering into a contract—be that a contract between a consumer and a company they're um, purchasing from, or a worker and, uh, a, and, and an employer—the contracts can't bear it. That it, the fact that you entered into a contract doesn't mean you entered into it freely or fairly or with enough or even power that you to get out of it. Stand what right. you've
1: what you've agreed to.
2: So speak a little bit to that because this is the core libertarian, or actually, just I think the core. I shouldn't put this on libertarians. A core objection to your theory, which is, listen, work workplaces have this power because people chose to work there and entered into a contract giving them that power, and you'd actually be taking their freedom away by not letting them do that.
1: Yeah, I think that's just an illusion, and it's not just because people don't even know what they're signing on to. It's that every contract already presupposes an infrastructure of laws that assigns default responsibility and powers and rights when that contract ends up being disappointing to one party or another. It's the state that sets the default terms of any contract through contract law, which tells us what happens when one side or another feels that something's gone wrong and the way this contract is working out is nothing that they wanted. So what has the state done in particular in structuring the employment contract? The default terms of the employment contract give incredible open-ended authority to employers over their workers. It's almost completely undefined or limited. Now, it is true that there's a certain subset of reasons, a very small set of reasons that employers are not allowed to use in determining who to hire and what orders you can be given and what conditions you can be subject to. Most of these have to do with discrimination. Employers are not allowed to discriminate on grounds of race, gender, veteran status, age, disability, and so forth. There's a there's a tiny number of forbidding grounds for employers making a decision. In reality, they make decisions on these grounds all the time, but I'll set that aside. The point is, is that if they're not making decisions on these forbidding grounds, they can make decisions on all kinds of other appalling grounds uh, that really are none of their business. You could be fired because the boss doesn't like who who you married. In about half the states, you could be fired because you gave a political contribution to somebody the boss doesn't like um, or because you refuse to participate in some political rally that the boss tells you you should show up for this is appalling why should we lose our civil and political rights just because we're in an employment relationship but there but in most states there's no law protecting people's freedom of political speech when they're off duty from arbitrary, employer interference.
2: Let me try to take let me try to offer the 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 counters on this. Yeah. Um, So one, it is completely true, as you say, that in most states you can be fired for who you marry. Um, Many states you can be fired for your sexuality. You can be fired for your political speech. But the truth of the matter is right now, in most states, you're not being fired for who you marry. You're not being fired for your political speech, although maybe we should come back to that one Um, that. If there was, in fact, a rash of employers misusing this power, that the state probably would step in because people would be furious about it. But in fact, they don't. And instead, what this power is often used for is protecting other workers. So you can get fired for your political speech um, because you went and made a bunch of racist comments on Facebook and you work in a workplace that does not want um, people making a bunch of racist comments because that makes the other people there feel unsafe or feel um, discriminated against. Uh, people are not being fired for, for who they marry, but the sort of the the, the broad that there are limits here because the state could step in because the market and publicity could create problems. And so in, in theory, these are scary examples, but in practice, they're just not how things are, are going.
1: You know, I think you should probably talk to LGBT people to find out their experiences at work. Uh, I think you might get a, a different report. because it's, it's not just about being hired and fired, but also lacking promotion or getting harassed at work. I I think things are a lot worse on the ground uh, in the experience of, granted, a minority of workers, um, but still they're already vulnerable to discrimination outside of work as well. uh, And they, they face it at work.
2: But but I, I want to be clear. So first, I'm a I believe we should have much tighter non discrimination laws and actually much tighter regulation around all this. I'm taking a bit of this position to to push you on it. But but the point I'm trying to make the the, the argument that I think you hear is that part of that power is actually used the other way. Um, part of that power that um, workplaces have is also to create a safe workplace environment is also to create uh, a situation where things are being regulated positively as opposed to just negatively. And then if you took that away, maybe that would be uh, a problem. I mean, the political speech, I think, is in some ways the most uh, useful example here. The Jamie Damore situation at Google comes up a lot. So here you have this guy writing on the internal Google message board this um, piece about how there probably just aren't that many female engineers because women biologically don't like to do computer science or are not as good at computer science or not as good at computer. Science on the extremes. And now there's like a big conflict over whether or not he should have been let go of that. And I think the a lot of folks on the left who probably hear what you're saying and think this is great also feel Jamie DeMora should have been fired. And there's a tension there.
1: Well, you should really read a great column by uh, Jonathan Zunger, I think is his name on Medium, uh, where he discussed that very case. And he's he's actually a tech guy, so he knows computer engineering from the inside. And he basically said that this guy didn't even understand the requirements of being a, a, a serious tech guy. It isn't about writing code. It, it's about managing people, which requires actually understanding human relationships and bringing out the best in workers. And when you go trashing uh, whole classes of co-workers on the basis of gender stereotypes, where you don't even understand what you're talking about because you're looking at averages when all these tech places are taking uh, very highly trained people at, at the tails of the distribution of talent, the argument doesn't even make sense. It just is an attack on coworkers that is ungrounded. In any empirical reality, it's just venting spleen. So, yeah, this person actually manifested incompetence at his job and for that reason should be fired.
2: So that's my question, because I'm not a fan of Jamie Demore, and I've read the piece you're talking about. I've. I'm I'm trying to offer the objections to this, not associate myself with all of them. But within the the construct you're creating here, it seems to me that maybe you'd want stronger speech protections for workers, and that what he did would be under a stronger speech protection. Um, and is that something people are comfortable with? Like that seems like the hard case to me.
1: Yeah, I I agree that that that. Well, I, I think in his case, it's actually fairly easy because he's communicating with his fellow workers. Suppose somebody keeps their prejudiced views out of the workplace and is just discussing them off duty, I, I think in that case, there actually is a, a much stronger case to be made if they're not actually bringing their baggage with them in work and one can't detect any expressions of prejudice while they're at work. Um, yeah, I, I think they they probably should have freedom to, you know, express obnoxious views Outside of work without without facing penalty at work. Now, again, there are some critical areas where we wouldn't want to extend that. So police forces, for instance. You know, somebody is is venting all kinds of racist views. And we have a police force, uh, and they're and they're, you know, they're they're a police officer. In that case, there's really not very good grounds for extending any kind of indulgence to them given the history of racism within American police forces, right? There's just no reason to trust that they'll be able to contain their prejudices while on duty. But in other cases, if the only evidence you have is off-duty speech and you can't find a trace of it on duty, I I think, yeah, people probably should get protection for their off-duty speech. One of the
2: questions I was thinking about reading your book is how much of the issues that you're raising in terms of worker treatment are related to or, or best solved through rights or through power. So there, there are some issues where maybe you just want a right not to have this happen to you. Like, I, I there's a part of me that thinks you should have a right to have a um, significant advance warning of your scheduling, that the move towards just-in-time scheduling should actually be understood as a violation of people's rights, given how unequal the contracting is at that level. Um, On the other hand, you could say that really, no, this is just a worker power issue, that uh, if workers had unions, if they had... um, healthcare and a universal basic income that that was offered by the state, so they had a little bit more capacity to exit, that then there'd be more freedom to enter and exit the contract. And as such, then that additional flexibility would be good for workplaces and allow people to make decisions that, you know, maybe work better for them and their families, or they want the trade-off of more money for just-in-time scheduling, something like that. How much of this do you see as a rights issue and how much of this do you see as a addressable through worker power issue?
1: Yeah, so I, I don't really have a general answer to that question. I think this is a place where we need to experiment and, and see how, you know, how satisfied people are with different regimes. Rights have a, a nice kind of clarity to them, and people know in advance what they're entitled to, and they don't need to appeal through uh, some power structure in order to get that But on the other hand, sometimes the rights can be written in a way that is fairly distant from the particularized needs of individual workers or groups of workers. And so that distance uh, could mean that they're not as well served than if the workers themselves had the power uh, to really negotiate in a serious way with their employer. So I, I don't really have any kind of a priori intuition here about which way to go. I, In general, I'm in favor of both rights and power. Um, if we empower workers to have a real voice in, in determining the conditions under which they work, there'd be a lot less need for regulation at the state level because workers could get that delivered to them in a more tailored way through negotiation with their employer, but again, there's all kinds of other issues here about races to the bottom in a highly competitive structure, right? There's all kinds of empirical considerations that that might lead you to still want to vest certain rights, just you know, by s- state law um, to prevent competition between workers driving things down or d- between firms, you know. D- driving labor conditions down but this is all this is all really a, at an empirical level where you can't give a general answer you have to look at the details of any particular interests that workers have and how that's working out given the structure of markets and the nature of competition and so forth
2: how should we think about the legitimacy of uh employer power inside versus outside of the workplace so something that has struck me in this conversation and and, and reading the book is that a lot of the examples that you give that are the most appalling are things where the worker, I'm sorry, the employer has power to regulate your behavior outside of the workplace. Things you say, people you marry, your sexuality, right, something you did on the weekend like that. I think that strikes people as beyond what should properly be. The, the, the workplace's power. On the other hand, something that will sometimes come up is just the direct manager-employee relationship. They can fire you for performing poorly in their eyes, or they can fire you just because they don't need you anymore, or they can change what you do on the job very rapidly. And is there a, a difference in your mind between how we should think about those governance-like qualities that are conducted on and off the grounds of the company itself?
1: Yeah. So we do have a system in which workers rightly need a sphere of their private life, their off-duty life, which isn't subject to regulation. Uh, And that interest in just having a private life insulated from employer power, I think maybe is better suited to direct state regulation. Um, because you could just say, look, you just got a right not to be discriminated against free or off-duty behavior. Inside the firm, there are, you know, efficiency considerations where workers might need to be reassigned to different jobs or different tasks uh, within the firm just in order to enable the product or service to be delivered. And, and so that's why employers, you know, have a lot of discretion. Uh, The difficulty here is that discretion is often accompanied by all kinds of abuses of power, a classic one being sexual harassment uh, and other forms of harassment, racial harassment and so forth. There's just enormous amounts of abuse uh, that many workers experience at work or subjection to very dangerous conditions like those miners in West Virginia who were ordered into a mine that they knew were unsafe and didn't want to go. And, you know, then there's an accident and what was it, 29 of them died? Uh, you know, the case I'm talking about? Yes,
2: it is horrifying.
1: Workers need a right to say, no, this is dangerous. We're, we're not going in there until the the mine is made safe. So it's not just about illegal things like sexual harassment, but even things that I suppose under our current under-regulated regime are formally legal, like... You know, ordering workers into unsafe conditions. Workers, workers need a say in that.
2: And how do you think about the difference between the right to say no and the right to to leave the job? Right. I mean, I think the 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 answer you'd normally get in this part is, yeah, they had the the right to say no. Um, they could they could um quit. And now I think this is a hard example because obviously this is the one where it went the absolute worst. But how do you? My my question is more: how do you distinguish between when a worker it, like I could imagine saying there should be a right to say no when safety is a concern, but then who decides when safety is a concern and how is that decision litigated um, is, a, is a tricky thing to imagine.
1: You see, this is where I think this is where you need worker power because it's not just the workers saying no, workers saying, look, this is what the mine needs. This is the equipment it needs yeah. or the arrangements it needs to be safe. And this is what we want installed. It's the power to shape the conditions of work in a positive way and not just to say, no, I- I'm not going to do this.
2: This is somewhere where, to, to actually bring up another Elizabeth Warren idea, uh, co-determination seems like a wise approach to me. Having a mandated worker representation on boards of directors seems pretty smart um, and works well in other countries. So we know it's not some kind of huge drag on 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 competitiveness. I know you bring it up in your book. I'd be, I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about it uh, as an idea and what you think it can and can't address.
1: Yes, exactly. So co-determination uh, was pioneered by Germany and it's been extended to other countries like France. And it, it works at a couple of levels. So uh, one level is just the shop floor. Workers work jointly with Representatives of capital interests in managing the shop floor, so workers are participating in management in determining the, the the conditions of work and even how to do the job, what tasks to assign, what kinds of machinery, what pace uh, that machinery is run at, and so forth, safety conditions. So there's all kinds of control that workers have, not exclusive control because they have to negotiate jointly with the employer representatives who work together to govern the shop floor. That gives workers an enormous amount of uh, of standing in how they're treated in the actual experience of day-to-day laboring. They also get seats on the board of directors of a large firm. Uh, And there, although they hold a minority of seats, if there's any kind of dissent um, among the representatives of the shareholders, uh, they can often win votes, uh, win decisions. Uh, if if the capital interests are divided over some plan, and that has to do with things like, are you going to uh, set up a supplier in a foreign country, and and strategic questions about how the firm is is managed. So those are you know a couple of different levels of co-determination that workers have, not because they had to run an election for union representatives, but it's just built into the structure of corporate governance that workers get a voice. So I'm, I'm a fan of that idea because it gives workers access to a voice without actually having to own the firm. Sometimes, you know, workers cooperatives, workers have a voice because in their capacity as owners of the firm. But it can be hard for workers to amass the capital, to exercise shareholders' rights to any significant degree. Under co-determination, they don't need that. They don't need ownership of shares in order to have a voice. So I'm a fan of Warren's proposal. One defect of it is that empirically, uh, if we look at how co-determination works in Europe, it's always in conjunction with labor unions. So it's unclear how well co-determination will work when you also don't have a strong labor union movement where most workers are represented. And let's keep in mind that even though actual membership in labor unions can be quite low in many European countries, so for instance, in France, the rates of unionization in the private sector are not that different from the United States, but it doesn't matter that much because you have sectoral bargaining. So even if only 6% of workers are formally members of the union, they still negotiate at at the level of the whole industry. And so many people who aren't formally members still get represented in a collective bargaining agreement to which their employers are subject. So labor unions just have enormous power in Europe. It's very unclear empirically how co-determination would work if workers aren't already organized into labor unions, so even though codetermination is legally distinct from labor unions, it does seem that in Europe, unions are helping workers sort of organize uh, their sense of their own interests and bargaining on other terms, which are not part of codetermination. For instance, just bargaining over wages, um, and it's unclear how How well co-determination would work if you don't also have most workers represented uh, in a collective bargaining agreement.
2: And to just draw out why that might be, um, these are, like, co-determination requires, on the one hand, having a broad sense of what the workers at the firm need and want. So somehow there needs to be representation of the workers among the workers on the, the board. And then secondarily, To be able to operate effectively on a board, you just like require a lot of complex informational resources so that you're being able to do the analyses and, you know, like come up with counter proposals. And if you're working all day, that's hard to do. And so, um, yeah, unions are sort of countervailing power where they give workers, some of the resources that um, are enjoyed by the executives and, and and the other board members who have, like, teams of people, like, helping right. create their strategic bargaining positions. Well,
1: I, I see unions especially important in just amassing enormous um, information resources that can be available to workers, where if they're just, you know, a bunch of workers who get co-determination, code they, they, they don't necessarily have the background of experience to wield the powers effectively. And unions can really shore that up because they have so much experience at, at other workplaces.
2: This seems to me to be a place where the the adding in the metaphor of government is really helpful because uh, the reason I've been trying to draw this distinction between rights and power is that there's one version of this where you imagine that workplaces, and this is correct, Uh, are subject to abuse. And I think a lot of your examples are forms of abuse or forms of sexual harassment, being sent into a mine that is unsafe, being fired for your sexuality. And you could imagine solving that through the government passing more rights or more robust um, non-discrimination laws, you know, or investigatory laws and, and, and so on. But if you want within the day to day of the organization for People to have voice, then you need to think about it like a, a government, and you're not necessarily taking away the the power of the workplace to exert control over workers, just like the government exerts control over a lot of us. There are a lot of laws that I can break, and when I leave here, I need to put on a seatbelt in my car, and so on. But that there's a there's an understood need for representation within that. That if you that I think has just kind of evaporated. Um, due to the absence of, of thinking about these within a metaphor that, like, we are used to applying representation to. And it seems to me that one reason this can happen is that in firms where workers have a lot more power, where they can go to other firms very easily, where their skills are very in demand, there actually is a lot of this representation. I've worked in a lot of places that operate with, I mean, if you're at The Washington Post, The Washington Post is very dependent on its top reporters. If they go to The New York Times, that's a huge blow. And so those people actually have a lot of power. There is a lot of representation at the Washington Post. There's also a union, but fully outside of the union, there's a lot of representation there in the way that place works. Um, but if you're operating at a Tyson meatpacking facility, there often isn't. And so like you need to think about that more systematically. Um, whereas like in this case, I think the people who would be have the most political power to change it are also the people who least need the change, and so are least worried by the by the absence of that kind of representation.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can see exactly the same dynamic happening in universities. So, you know, tenured faculty, it's an amazingly great job. Not only do you have enormous autonomy, but also collectively, every department is basically self-governing, right? We have a collegial system where the faculty, you know, decide together, you know, who's going to be hired and tenured and promoted and so forth. Um, There's an enormous amount of worker control at the departmental level, at least in liberal arts school. I've heard that in medical school, it's completely different and it's much more dictatorial and authoritarian over there. But <laughs> at least in liberal arts departments, there's an enormous amount of power and autonomy, including collective governance autonomy, that tenured faculty have. On the other hand, if you look at the the untenured faculty, lecturers, for instance, wow, uh, it's a completely different situation. They really need a union. Um, at my university, University of Michigan, they actually do have a union and, uh, it's only through that vehicle that they've gotten, um, you know, some pretty good benefits. Otherwise they would probably be treated as among the most exploited workforces in America. There are many adjunct faculty at many universities that are making, in effect, less than the minimum wage, um, Because they're not paid by the hour. They're paid by the course. And the amount that they're paid is when you divide by the number of hours it takes to actually teach and do all the grading and prepare the lectures and so forth. Uh, It doesn't even meet the minimum wage. People without benefits. Um, These are incredibly exploited workers, even though they're talented knowledge workers, often with PhDs, uh, just extraordinarily exploited. In, In cases like that, yeah, they definitely need a union, but but often you're right that for highly skilled workers upon which the organization deeply depends for its mission and reputation and so forth, uh, those workers often do have uh, considerable power both as individuals and collectively to determine the the conditions of their work.
2: All right, let, let, let's take a quick break right here, and then we'll be right back. Support for this
3: podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource isn't water or gold or even oil. It's data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. These transactions are mostly invisible to us and worth billions. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for society? Join host Rafi Krikorian, Chief Technology Officer at Emerson Collective, for Season 2 of Technically Optimistic where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. How do we advocate for ourselves and our privacy so that we can have control over our information and a say in how technology evolves from surveillance to social media, reproductive rights to criminal justice reform? Krikorion leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity, encouraging us to remain technically optimistic in the face of big data. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday.
2: Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Something that I looked into while reading the book was, it seemed to me you might imagine that given the extent of dictatorial power that workplaces have over people, um, without real recourse that that you described, that they're quite unpopular. But I, w- I was looking at this and um, Gallup has a lot of polling on both workplace and political happiness. And I was struck to see that um, something like 84% of people say that they are some level of satisfied, most of them completely satisfied, with their boss or manager, while only fifty-three percent of people say they're satisfied with their member of Congress, and this <laughs> held true with a lot of different ways I tried to look at it. Um, most people, uh, again, this is almost ninety percent, were com- satisfied, mostly or, or or completely, with the flexibility of their hours. Um, whereas, if you look at a lot of things about how government is functioning, people say it's just terrible. What? What? Why do you think that people seem less happy with their representative institutions than the institutions that in this in the way? you're describing them are less representative?
1: Well, for one thing, it's a lot easier to quit a work situation that you don't like and get into something that's that's better for you. But again, the ability to do that varies a lot depending on circumstance, uh, say, access to transportation if one needs to commute to work. Um, so there's wide variation of, among individuals in their ability to exit any particular employment situation. But, you know, the problem is, is that it's a lot harder if you want to move out of state if you're not happy with the state you live in. And of course, it's even harder at the national level. When you scale up, exit becomes harder. And for that reason, you need even more voice. And right now we have, I think, we're we're in a political situation where we're bumping up against the inherent defects of our constitution. So if we're looking at national politics in particular, where, you know, the polling shows that Congress is less popular than the Ebola virus, uh, why is that? But to be uh, fair,
2: think of how much the Ebola virus got done last year. Yeah, <laughs>
1: exactly. Well, that's yes, I mean, we do have a lot of gridlock. It's actually quite shocking. And, and, and the reason for this is, I think, some defects that are built into our Constitution, there are way too many veto points. And... In our highly polarized political context, parties have come to recognize that it's easier to block uh, the majority to win elections rather than to get something done. And so we're seeing massive gridlock in unresponsive politics. There are other reasons for this that have to do with, you know, the the overwhelming influence of wealth on politics. But I, I do think that that our Constitution needs fundamental structural reform. And I think the biggest defect of the Constitution by far is that it's almost impossible to amend. That's where you get more more veto points than anywhere else. So we're, we're stuck in a very dysfunctional system, which actually isn't designed really to uh, solve problems for people. Um, and it makes it very difficult for governments to solve problems for people. The political incentives are are all screwed up.
2: Well, you're singing my song on a very, very, very deep level here. (laughs) But, uh, But let me try to actually draw out a symmetry or at least maybe a fear people would have about a symmetry. So one argument for why our political system is failing is that from a democratic, small d democratic point of view, People do not want to be as involved as they need to be to fix and overcome the inertia of the system. They don't want to sort of study its defects. they 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 want to elect somebody, and a lot of them don't even want to do that who'll just come in and fix it. and if if you talk to people and I do often about, well, how are we going to fix this or that? How are you going to get this over the veto points? How are you going to succeed where so many others have failed before you and passed Medicare for all or from the other side, whatever you know, the Ryan budget or whatever it is? Um, people say, well, we're going to organize the people. And then it turns out that it's very, very hard to organize people in a sustained, consistent way um, over the amount of time you would need to execute that kind of political change. And this is a problem for for theorists of democracy, that the system would work a lot better if more people wanted to be more involved on on a deeper level. But you could say the same thing about workplaces. I mean, a very common criticism of unions, particularly as time goes on, is that a lot of workers don't want to be that involved in the union. The union becomes captured by a smaller number of workers or by the union's own bureaucracy, that it ends up being a, a thing that advocates on behalf of the people who need it, but is not really representing the people who are more productive. And that over time, the unions become serotic and veto oriented in exactly the way that becomes frustrating at the governmental level um, and really the way of, of almost any bureaucracy. And so the problem people keep running into over and over and over again is that while well, it would be great to have full democratic equality in all these different organizations, institutions, the problem is a lot of people don't want to exercise democratic obligations and responsibilities at the level necessary to keep them working well.
1: Yeah. So there are costs to participation, but I do think we we have to separate a few strands in this. So I, I agree with you that you've correctly identified a problem with our current labor union structure. But I also want to point out that co-determination actually can help to remedy some of that. So insofar as what we're concerned about is actual conditions on the shop floor, the day-to-day experience of workers, just actively involving them day-to-day in collaborating with them to think through how to run things better, both from the perspective of the worker's experience, but also in terms of, you know, delivering better products and services Workers can get a lot of fulfillment uh, from actually being given some autonomy and say in in how they're going to work, to make to incorporate that as part of their responsibilities on the job. um it's part of their job. And to be given that kind of respect, And autonomy is a plus. It doesn't have to be seen as a cost because it's not diverting them from what they otherwise would prefer to be doing. I mean, they're there to be working and here we've just redefined uh, their job description to include some say in management Uh, If we look at how co-determination works in Europe, workers are actually pretty happy about that system. And one of the things it does is gives them management experience and more of an ability to actually uh, move up and have a a genuine job ladder than exists in the United States, where basically the job ladder barely exists anymore in many firms. So if if we go then now to the context of state and national politics, There, we do have a serious problem because the time that people are expected to spend in politics is time they feel is taken away from spending time with family and friends, recreation, especially if they're drained from work. Uh, Maybe they'd rather go out and, you know, have a beer with their friends than go around knocking door to door or canvassing for some political candidate. But there's another way in which we could think about organizing citizens uh, for democratic action. So there's a political philosopher, Alex Guerrero at uh, Rutgers, who has proposed this idea called latocracy. And this of course is massively experimental, um, but I think it has some level of interest to it. uh, And I think we should experiment with it. His idea is, say you have a particular problem. Mostly this would work at local government say you know we got to fix the roads it's a big problem in michigan we have the worst roads in all, in any of the 50 states instead of handing this decision over to the legislatures you could pay a randomly selected bunch of citizens to kind of work out a solution by discussing the issues and bringing in experts we already have seen remarkable success with this kind of citizen's participation. Now, you do have to pay them. That's the thing. But it's not obvious to me. You know, we've got gridlock now in in Lansing, Michigan, over repairing the roads and how to pay for it. Maybe that is a decision you could turf out to citizens who desperately want roads to be fixed and, you know, give them access to experts. You pay them. So they take time off from work and they're doing this for their work instead. I actually have considerable confidence that given a narrowly focused issue that ordinary citizens randomly selected could do a good job. We already trust randomly selected citizens on juries to decide matters of enormous import, uh, for the future of criminal defendants on trial. I think it'd be worth exploring whether, uh, Citizens could work equally well or perhaps better than representative legislators in solving the problems that, that we face together.
2: So we've talked a bit about co-determination. What are the, the couple of other policies or protections or guarantees that you think would do the most to make workplaces more democratic?
1: Getting back to this issue, we do need, I think, a revival of the labor movement. Right now, it's basically been crushed, and uh, this has been a decay that's been going on for decades, accelerated in the 80s under Reagan. Workers now don't really have effective access to uh, the legal rights to organize a union, Uh, and the way American union laws are written require organization at an incredibly small scale. So you have to win an election on every shop floor <laughs> for you know every specialty. It, it's almost impossible to pull that off. Uh, what you need is to open up the laws to enable workers to organize at scale. And then we need much more experimentation with making those unions more democratic more accessible to everyone. Right now, uh, unions tend to be skewed in favor. There's enormous age discrimination, actually, within unions. They tend to favor the workers with more seniority. Younger workers uh, really aren't well served um, by such systems. So we really need a massive rethink about the whole structure uh, of union laws in the United States, because right now they're not really able to do an effective job of representation.
2: I think that is a good place, actually, to to close out. So let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is, what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm not going to be talking specifically about work in these recommendations, but rolling back to a kind of larger view of where we are and thinking in particular about democracy. So even though... What we've been talking about is making the workplace more democratic. I think we have to also just think more generally about what democracy is. And so my recommendations are oriented in that direction. So, a couple of books. Thinking about our current political moment marked by the rise of populist uh, politics, I strongly recommend this book by Jan Werner Muller called What is Populism? I think it has the clearest, most concise account of just what populism is and why so many countries around the world, not just the United States, uh, have been taken over by populist politicians and what kind of a threat that actually is to democracy. Another book, uh, this is really off the grid, but I think it's an incredibly important book, very deeply insightful book by Elise Springer called Communicating Moral Concern. And I'm putting it on there. She has some excellent examples of how people communicate moral concern effectively in the context of the workplace, actually. But in a way, more generally, we can see her philosophical work as trying to illuminate something that's essential a skill and set of techniques that's essential for democracy. What are we doing in democracy? We're, we are communicating our concerns with each other for the purpose of coming to terms with problems and figuring out solutions to those problems. And Springer, I think, gives us really nice access to that at a level of moral philosophy. Uh, And and finally, I'd like to recommend a wonderful book uh, by Charles Mills called The Racial Contract. Um, Mills is revising the political philosophy of social contract theory doing it for the very non-ideal context in which we currently operate, uh, and in particular with a focus on racial inequality and how racial inequality can persist over time by means of a kind of social contract that he sees operating among white people uh, to keep themselves on top. Mills's work is is, I think, very provocative and insightful and uh, it interacts in interesting ways with Jan Werner Muller's work on populism.
2: Elizabeth Anderson, thank you very much.
1: You're welcome. It's a pleasure.
2: So that's the show. I also wanted to return to something we were talking about right at the beginning about ideologies. Uh, I've been thinking a lot recently about this idea of being many-modeled, of being able to say, of being able to look at something and sort of take on and take off the lenses of different ideologies and different models. And there's this very poisonous discourse where Ideologies are always in conflict with each other. Is is this one right or is that one? Even in this great piece that Anderson wrote, it's about pitting the idea of lucky egalitarianism against the idea of democratic equality. Where I probably side more with Anderson on that. But the idea that one is wrong and one is right—it's more like one is maybe forty percent right and the other is maybe seventy percent right. Or you can put your values in, in different places there. But I think it's it's always worth trying to to cultivate the ability in yourself. To look at things with many models all at once, because no one model is going to map out the whole territory, and the fact that another one fails doesn't mean it doesn't succeed sometimes, right? And so, being able to hold on to a lot of models that are maybe twenty percent helpful because they fill in the things that your best models miss, um, I think that's a real, real value. It's certainly the project of the show more than anything else is, um, is to try to expose me and you and all of us. To a lot of different models, which are going to be useful in, 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 in different levels and at different times. Um, thank you to Topher Ruth for engineering. Thank you to Jeffrey Geld for producing. To Roche Karma for researching. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org to learn more and support their cause.